This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. You're listening to This Day in History, a podcast dedicated to examining history from a standpoint of determining which event on any given day had the greatest impact on our lives. Now your host, Tony Hubert and Armand Kachigian. Welcome into a special installment of This Day in History here on lineupmedia.fm. Tony Hubert here with you, my partner, my cohort, my confederate, Armand Kachigian alongside. Today, we honor Pearl Harbor. 75th anniversary. 75 years ago today. Do you know you have any idea how many are still alive? Not too many, I would uh, think. No, there, there are less than the estimate. The estimate is around 2,000 right now. That many? Well, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know what they consider. Be, be, because they're, Servicemen that they're, are they're, still? Because of so many servicemen. Well, for I guess the, that makes sense. Specifically, yeah. and if you've seen the news over the past 48 hours, there are five Arizona survivors left. Wow. Um, and two have uh, two Arizona survivors had passed away this year. Oh. Four of the five men were able to travel to Pearl Harbor and are there now That's great. for a special yeah. commemoration. You know, I think still leaks like a quart of oil a day. It's amazing. Something like that. And yeah. I've never been to Pearl. I've never been to Hawaii, but my mother did a uh, an extensive tour. Uh, now, I think they also have a... Was it back in 94, 95, they actually have in Oklahoma the same kind of thing, you know, because that's still down at the bottom, too, I think. The Oklahoma's capsized. Yeah, they, yep. they never, they never, they lost. the rest of them, there were eight eight battleships, mm-hmm. uh, All actually nine, if you include the Utah, which was a target ship, which, you know. But it was, it was a ship of the line. It was line. a battleship, yep. yeah. So, so technically there were nine. 21 warships in all. Um, were sunk. Sunk or damaged. Mm-hmm. All but three of them would return yeah, to yeah. some form of service. Uh, the California was, um, you know, was sinking on uh, December seventh. The Oklahoma was capsized. The Virginia was on fire. The Nevada was grounded, and of course, the Arizona was completely, yeah, completely lost. Was it the? I think it was West Virginia, wasn't it? Yeah, the West Virginia. Yeah, I'm sorry, the right. West Virginia. So the uh, and most of those battleships were. World War One yeah, they were, era they were battleships. Ships. It's not to say they're, they're certainly not the Iowa class battleships no, that no. seem to be more associated with World War Two. They're much bigger ships. However, it's not to say these are not impressive ships. If you've ever seen an aerial photo of the Arizona Memorial, you, you know everyone is you know kind of familiar with that white. Yeah, you, the, you know, whatever memorial. viewing deck or whatever. And it's you call a viewing it. deck. Yeah, and it, it basically sits over where the top of the bridge mm-hmm. uh, would have been, and uh, you get a sense of the scale, you know, of a ship that's well over six hundred feet long, and has a beam, you know, in the hundred plus foot area, and you really do get a scale of the size of 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 a battleship, even of that era. And yeah. consider how much bigger the Missouri is, which is now at Pearl as well, you know, the beginning of the war Mm -hmm. with the attack, the end of the war with the USS Missouri being where the peace treaty, you know, the uh, The Tokyo Bay, the surrender documentation was signed in Tokyo Bay. You know, they're both, you know, now 
together at Pearl. Of course, they're quite fitting. Even then, they were outmoded, really. I mean, that's that's one of the mistakes, of course, the Japanese made. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think I saw we were exchanging some notes. Uh, the British actually sunk the Italian fleet at Toronto. Toronto, Italy. In 1940. Yeah, we're going to talk about that because yeah. that, that becomes a, a, a topic. The Japanese should have known. Well, yeah, the Japanese should have known. Right there, it should tell you that air power is much more. Uh, although, I know, I guess, I guess you could attribute it just to that being the Italian Navy. So, like, Well, no, the Italian Navy at search was, was impressive. They, I mean, they, unfortunately, manned by Italians. Okay. But uh, Well, you do not like the French no, or the Italians. I, I, I like the Italians. They had they're huge, just not, you know, huge they were pretty inept at war. battleships, though, yeah. the Italians Well, they did. sunk the French fleet, too. Yeah, I Killed mean. a lot of French but, sailors. You know, battleships like the, the British, Roma. That is. Battleships like the Roma, mm-hmm. you know, these are substantial capital ships. So today on the program, in honor of Pearl Harbor, and excuse my voice, I'm getting over a chest cold, everybody, the um, the topics we're going to discuss all involve Pearl Harbor. But I will tell you the source material that we've drawn a lot of our things from. Um, it comes from a new book that has been released that you can find both at audible.com as an audiobook and at by amazon.com if you would like the hardcover uh, edition. I don't believe a paperback is out yet. The book is entitled A Matter of Honor, and the authors are Anthony Summers and Robin Swan. And they are both featured prominently in a show that debuted this past Sunday night, December the 4th. Is that Honor with a U? No. Okay, so they're not British. No, All right. no, so they're American. Not. All right. And uh, this show premiered. Okay, I'm going to read that. This show premiered on the History Channel, and it's called Pearl Harbor, The Truth. Now, I will state up front that this is a piece of advocacy authorship yeah. or journalism whose truth so so um it's not to discount the facts that the researchers and the authors of this book have uncovered because i believe the facts that they have uncovered are indeed true um but as with everything facts must be placed into context and as we go through what is a chronological timeline of the events leading up to Pearl Harbor, you can start to get a sense of perhaps three different things, Armand. One, this was a huge comedy of errors leading to the events of December 7th. Two, this was gross negligence on the United States well, is administration. That, is, that these, is that what these authors? Is that their theorem theory? Uh, I, I would say. I'm, I'm I would say sure they, was... they. They. I would say they cite on on a gross negligence, and and placing blame on a system rather than specific right. individuals. Now, do you buy that? I don't buy that. You know, anytime by what? Well, anytime you assume someone's being stupid or incompetent or negligent. I just don't buy that as an explanation. I think it's deliberate. I really do. Well, and this gets From to what the, I've read. the third I've one. I've read that book. The third one, uh, uh, you know, beyond comedy of errors, mm-hmm. gross negligence, and the third one is simply flat-out conspiracy. Yeah. And, or and, maybe a combination. And you can always have a combination, but uh, that's what we're going to discuss today in large part as 75 years have gone by and America still tries to put the events of that date in context. The theme of this show is what happened on this date that affects your life the most to this day. Now, I think certainly the attack on Pearl Harbor affected all of our lives the most. I don't think there's another event you can pull out from December 7th that you can make no, an argument I, not, for an American. We're not going to discuss, that, gonna discuss that point. However, except it is Noam Chomsky's birthday. The uh, the events we hate him too. The events that did occur mm-hmm. on December 7th, there are multitudes of events that have changed the world that we live in today. 
and they vary from tactical warfare to the dissemination and the collection of information, which goes right into advanced computing. Because we're talking about code breaking and other things that are the predecessors to your big, you know, uh, computational machines, which then in the 1950s become flat out computers. Okay. Well, I, well, we can start with that. I, I would. Now, well, well, I've read that we did have the code broken, but apparently it was a civilian code or di- diplomatic. It's code. It's a diplomatic code, and so and so the, they weren't getting actual war information. Let me give you some of the stats on Pearl Harbor to begin with. As I said earlier, twenty-one warships sank or damaged. The USS Arizona alone, eleven hundred and seventy-seven were killed. That is half of the casualties of the entire attack on Pearl Harbor. And it's the single largest loss of life in American naval history. As we mentioned earlier, as of today, the recording of this show, December 7th, 2016. I think that's still the only, record. I'm that sure. is still the record, and only five of those men survive. The USSS California was sunk on that date. The USS Oklahoma capsized. The USS West Virginia set on fire. The USS Nevada grounded. All told... 2,403 perished on December 7th. Now, you mentioned the Nevada, a little trivia question. That is the only ship that was both at Pearl Harbor and Normandy on D-Day. That's amazing. Yep. That is amazing. USS Nevada. So the Navy lost more than 2,000 servicemen on December 7th. Uh, That statistically is more than the Navy lost in the entirety of their operations during World War I. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, if that's World War II, I'd have to check on that. Oh, yeah, yeah. World War I, I can, I can see that, yeah. The, uh, other stati- it wasn't a Navy war. No, it was. Uh, it was a ground war. Not for us, anyway. No. Uh, Japan sent a carrier fleet of six carriers plus support ships. I think I can name them. Go right ahead. Uh, this is without notes. Zuikaku, mm-hmm. Shokaku, mm-hmm. Hiryu, yes. Soryu, Kaga, yes. and Akagi. Akagi. Okay. You are correct. All right. And and four of those would be lost at Midway. Six months later at Midway. Yeah. Uh, in the spring of uh, 1941, just give you an idea of how, how unprepared the United States was for war. In the spring of 1941, the United States has one combat division ready. Germany has 200 active combat divisions. Well, they're at war. They're at war. Japan, which had been at war for some time. Yeah, China, China and other places in Asia, specifically Southeast Asia, had 100 combat divisions ready. See, there again, that runs contrary to some of the things I've read. Now, I've read, and I'm I've, I'm still on an opinion, that 80% or more of the population, if you'd asked in 1940, and I know polling is kind of an mm-hmm. interesting skewed kind of uh, business, but I've read that 80% or probably more of the United States did not want to get involved in this war. Mm-hmm. And then I read somewhere else, and this is just doing the research for this show, that it was like half thought that we would be at war well, one, by two, the end of 1941. But or, want to and will be yeah. are two different questions. Well, they, they kind of intim- uh, intimated that uh, these people want, you know, thought we should get involved. I don't think that – I mean, if you've got one re- combat-ready division, I just can't see how, pop quote, popular – getting involved in this war would have been no at that point no spring of 1941 just saying? pull pull the members of your own family if they're still alive yeah i have to ask my dad about that of my grandfather's he's an ardent roosevelt support my so. grandfathers were not prepared for a war now they no, were I, they were already in their early 30s 
and one would serve as a uh, as a CB, which mm-hmm. is you know a construction and engineering right wing of the yeah, United States a dangerous profession Navy. Too. Yeah, but you're not getting shot at. Well, I don't know. The Japanese like to snipe at well, those guys. Not, well, true, but not necessarily. So, <coughs> excuse me, folks. Also, uh, a, sort of a a painful stat from December seventh. There were 49 civilian casualties that day in in and around Pearl Harbor, Honolulu. That's all. 39 of those, Armand, were caused by friendly fire. Oh, yeah. Honolulu residents rushed to the harbor to try to help. Yeah. And there was such confusion and such paranoia that servicemen were thinking we're under attack. Yeah. Well, I mean, did you see from here to eternity? Yes. Okay, well, Montgomery Cliff, poor Montgomery, got shot by his own men. But that's not not an exaggeration. They thought they were going to be invaded. It's accurate. They really thought invasion was coming. And the the stats prove it out. In fact, it was a welter, you know. So let's get get into the chronological things that sort of lead up to the attack, if you don't mind. All right. Um, You have to go back, and you referenced this earlier, uh, the British at Toronto. Toronto, Italy. Yeah, I don't this is in November, November 11th of 1940. So the British Royal Navy carries out a raid in Italy, and they use what is a modified torpedo with a wooden fin. Right. And the water at Taranto is actually shallower than the water at Pearl Harbor. Right. I think it was at that point, it was axiomatic that the water in these harbors was too, too shallow for any torpedoes to yeah. be used. Torpedo would be released from yeah. the plane. Dive, just hit the bottom, hit the bottom, and detonate or embed. Right. Okay. So they and weren't worried about that kind the, of attack. Exactly. This is something that the United States re- will, as you will see in minutes, repeatedly references as concerns about an attack in the Pacific are expressed, specifically about Pearl Harbor. So on that date, the water, you know, again, it's shallower in Toronto than it is at Pearl Harbor. So the U.S. asked the British for information about these wooden fins. And Admiral Stark, Naval Chief Washington, his own observer submits a report in person to him. And it details that the torpedoes that the British were using could be dropped in as little as 33 feet of water and successfully run on to their target. So this report that gets submitted to your big naval guy in Washington seems to have gone nowhere. Yeah. In fact, it was only discovered this year by the authors of the book I referenced, the the uh, the book, A Matter of Honor. The Again, the authors, uh, Anthony Summers and Robin Swan, they only find the document this year as they're doing their research. And despite this, Admiral Stark in Washington continues to send. No, he was. Uh, OK, yeah, go ahead. Continues to send information to right. Kimmel. Right, the admiral in Hawaii for the Navy, who would take the fall for right. Pearl Harbor? I think, but that's why I was saying, is is it was it Richardson was because Richardson got sacked in was it forty one? That that was another that was something else I think because Richardson kept telling FDR we are very very vulnerable to attack and he got sacked. Yeah, because he wanted more preparedness. He knew that this was coming. Yes, uh, I think that was in the spring of forty-one, I believe. So it would have been Richardson, wouldn't it? Uh, J.R. Richardson. No, he is mentioned in this, but okay. but the the recipient of the report. This is Stark, who he okay. and Kimmel are going to encounter. You know, basically. So Stark, despite knowing this, keeps telling Admiral Kimmel at Pearl Harbor and in person, "Oh, you have nothing to worry about." 
it, the the water depth is is not going to allow them to use mm-hmm. a torpedo attack. Now you know something else about that Toronto, and, and you brought up the Roma. Now I I haven't read this in a while, but the, I do the the battleship that was actually sunk, I think, by a radio controlled bomb. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, it was the first was a, time. It was, was almost like a smart bomb. What yeah. we would call it. not very smart by our standards. Oh, low tech smart, but, but yeah. it was a radio controlled. Uh, that's a first ship sunk like that. So that's interesting. So move forward. Move of course, forward. The Japanese in, didn't use. Yeah, you move forward in 1941. A Yugoslavian double agent, Dusan Popov. You ever heard this? Yeah, name? I've heard that name. Now yeah. a lot. Uh, some people will say this is the precursor to Ian Fleming's James Bond, but a whole bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. Lay, I, I know. I I forgot the guy's name. But, yeah. A whole bunch of people can yeah, lay that, that super spy that exactly. he was a British MI6 guy. So he had been turned by British intelligence, mm-hmm. MI6, and uh, he was actually the first active double that they had operating and the British send him over to the FBI and Popoff, Dusan Popoff gives J. Edgar Hoover a questionnaire that is embedded onto microfilm. And in the questionnaire, it includes questions from the Japanese to the Germans. Do you know anything about water depth and anti-torpedo nets at Pearl Harbor? (laughs) The FBI having this information Never passes it on. Yeah, well, that sounds like 9-11 kind of stuff where there's no coordination of these organizations. And and, you, you start you know, to see the yeah, comedy of errors starting to come together now where the information is there, but no one is connecting the dots and the system is starting to fail itself. Yeah, you know, but the other thing is, uh, in hindsight, I don't know, it, a lot of a lot of what they say is they didn't want to they didn't want to um, when you talk about preparedness and civil mm-hmm. defense, et cetera, they didn't want to initiate a panic. That's what I, I've always read, that that mm-hmm. was the main thing. We can't get the civilians. We can't get the people of uh, Hawaii all hepped up about this on, you know, this upcoming attack because they they didn't want that. to. Have, I don't know. I don't know how much civilian you know hysteria there would have been just doing. You know, because I remember as a kid, I think, I don't know if we ever did. Did you do any nuclear? I think you have only about tornadoes. 10 years older. Only tornadoes. Yeah. I don't but the, we had a the fact of the matter is, remember, you just duck those, and cover those stuff. Those drills were the same that yeah. you would have done for a new. I was a kid, you know, in the 70s. I don't remember doing it, but I know in the 50s, probably in the 60s, too, they did that routinely. Well, the, yeah. So I don't know how much you're going to get the people, you know, this mass hysteria they were worried about. But that's one of the excuses that they didn't want to alarm the local civilian population. So they didn't have all these drills. And I don't know. It's a little flimsy to me. Have you ever read At, At Dawn We Slept? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's years that's ago. The book I have always, you know, it's read in high school. So. So into into 1941, June, Kimmel himself from Honolulu flies to Washington, Armand. Yeah. To see. Naval Operations Chief Harold Stark. Okay. In a face-to-face, Kimmel is requesting intelligence on Japanese and what they're doing, and Stark assures him he's going to be supplied with it. I will keep you informed. Stark assures Kimmel, again, the 45-foot depth of Pearl Harbor is too shallow for an attack with aerial torpedoes. Stark, either at this point, already knows that's not true or is totally negligent in and just not paying attention mm-hmm. to previous reports that there is now a way around the depth for torpedoes. Now, the still dive bombers are still totally in place because sure. you're just, you know, and, and the Arizona was the result of a dive bomber. Correct. Where yeah. the Oklahoma is the result of torpedoes. Right. Uh, although it's a myth that uh, – now, I was always taught – I remember uh, – here, I don't remember by whom, but – 
That remember, have you ever been taught that the uh, the dive bomber dropped dropped a bomb it right down a, the, the smokestack? It is an absolute myth. Yeah, that's not. There you is, can see now. There you know, is if you no see the ship. There is happen. zero evidence yeah. uh, today. The magazine. That, I think. And it is clear that, and they have a very reasonable. Yeah. Uh, scenario. But have you heard that? Uh, that oh, myth? oh, yeah, totally. Okay. Totally. That it was one in a million shot right, right. down the smoke. No, right. it, it, that did not happen. And I think that was, uh, what was, okay, you go, I, I, the pilot. Uh, well, there's, Kanai. Con- there's Kanai conjecture. Pilot. There's con- conjecture about that as well. And I'll get to that. Okay. In a oh, bit. we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. The, the, uh, so, again, Admiral Stark, either, either grossly negligent or flat out. Okay. Flat yeah. out. I don't know. I, I don't buy negligence. I just don't. So like do you it. buy conspiracy yes. here? Okay. On this one I do. In September, specifically September twenty fourth, nineteen forty one, intercepted messages from Tokyo to the Japanese consulate in Hawaii, asking for exact location of the ships anchored in Pearl Harbor, and they got it. Takio Yoshikawa. Yep. A basically a placed spy yeah. at the consulate is given the job. Yeah, Morimura was his name. Mm-hmm. His like cover. Right. He's supposed to be a diplomat. Yeah. He's an outright spy. He's an outright I think everybody spy. knew it. They were taking him on tours of this place. Yeah. He simply he simply gets in a car. Yeah. Yeah. He took him in a jeep. I think and he drives him around to public vantage points above the harbor, and he records what he sees on a grid. Yeah. Then. After the 24th of September, 1941, more intercepted messages come in that give the U.S. even more evidence that Tokyo is asking Yoshikawa to increase his reports to twice a week. Yeah, and he was taking plane rides, too. I mean, he, he, was, I mean, he, he knew that harbor, and so did they. This, course. to me, is unconscionable. Admiral Kimmel in Honolulu never learns that there is a spy watching and reporting on ship anchorage at Pearl Harbor. Stark, however would get this info in Washington in a routine daily briefing. And do what with it? Well, you were not allowed to keep the the daily briefing. It would be brought in by the intelligence officer. He would look at it. He would acknowledge that he's seen it. He would give it back to the intelligence officer. It would get filed away. So imagine you're seeing individual frames of a picture. This is how the authors of the book describe it. He, he sees the individual frames, mm-hmm. but he never sees the whole role. Yeah. Now, I think that's being kind to him because at this point, I'm already drawing the conclusion. Yeah. Talk about forest for the trees. Mm. I'm already drawing the conclusion that if, if this starts to repeat itself, that something's up. Now, I will give him the benefit of the doubt. In the context of what, though? Were they getting the same reports from the Philippines, from Wake Island, from Singapore, from other you know, did they have to? Were they were they busy watching ten things at once? Of course, that's not where the fleet is. You know. Yeah, yeah but that is, exactly. Yeah. That's not where your fleet is. You should be protecting your right. fleet. Yeah, those are just at the end outposts. of the day. You have yeah. And if you thought, well, you know, they'll never tr- sail out into the middle of the Pacific and try this. Well, better safe than sorry. Well, so at this point, um, at this point, uh, Stark he gets this routine daily briefing. Additionally, uh, 10 men would get info that's divined out of these daily routines. These are all close to the president. These are all members. These are all people who are close to the president. And this is Project Magic that is decoding these diplomatic messages. So all of this is known. 
but never would anything get assembled. So what does this indicate to you? Never would anything get assembled into a report of all the decoded and intercept messages concerning Pearl Harbor. So at this point, it's indicating to me gross dereliction of intelligence or conspiracy because we're now past comedy of errors. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason the reason I because none of this stuff happened during the war. There weren't this many screw ups. You know, these people weren't stupid. That's why, I said, you know, I, I don't like to use stupid as an excuse. No, you should now, not. I'm not a big conspiracy theorist either. And neither am I. There's so much in it. And these there's a there's basically a world war going on here. Mm-hmm. And to think that we're going to stay out of it or that. And, and now you're you're chivying the Japanese. You're, you're cutting off their oil. You're cutting off their uh, scrap metal. You're telling them they want to they want they're sending diplomats. But you tell them you get out of China first and then we'll talk. Well, that to me, you're, you're just basically pushing these guys into a corner. And don't forget, you know, the British out of all this. Now this is back in 23. This is where I would have started. You know the British, they the Japanese were our allies during World War 1. Mm-hmm. Especially the British. And there was there was quite a there was a great um entente between these two countries until the British thought that being allies with the Japanese would somehow uh ruin their uh ruin their relationship with the Americans. So they pretty much in the, in the early 20s abrogated this treaty between them. That wasn't a real good move either. So that's kind of where all this started. And the Japanese aggression began and, you know, they went after China, et cetera. Exactly. And they, they were under pretty good control when, they, when the British and, and technically the Americans were their allies. So the, the thought that, you know, Japanese were just hungry for empire and wanted to conquer the world as Hitler did, I don't think that really holds much water either. So basically what I'm saying is we're pushing these people into war and Roosevelt knew it. I mean, he used to, he was the uh, what was he secretary of the Na- assistant secretary of the navy. Oh, the, na- the navy was extremely important to Roosevelt yeah. to FDR. Right. Okay. Further on on November the fifth. Um, now you're a month and two days yeah, away we're from the close attack. Now more Project Magic intercepts reveal that Tokyo is informing the diplomats in D.C. the Japanese diplomats that time is running out on negotiations. Yeah. Who were the remember? Do you remember? I do not Kurusu remember and. Uh, there are two of them. All right, go ahead. Yeah. The two two diplomats. And I, I, there's the other myth is that they're outside the office waiting. And they yeah, have yeah. No, they have I don't no think clue. that's true. Yeah, yeah it's that, not true right. at all. It's not true at all. They, Although they did screw up their timetable because I think they were supposed to declare war. It's give them, you know, before mm-hmm. the attack. Something, yeah, that's something wrong with that. So the message instructs, on November the 5th, the message instructs the Japanese embassy in D.C. that they should consider November 25th a deadline for negotiations. The message states that beyond that deadline, things will happen automatically. What things, Armand? On November the 25th, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Naval Fleet set sail for Hawaii under radio silence. Right. But I I think it was still not quite sure they were going to do it. I'm sure there was a fail-safe of some sort. Yeah, they had the the, the code, whether it was climb Mount Yitaka. Yeah, or, or, I don't know how you pronounce it, but that's that. They, that was okay. All systems that was one, go right. That's it. And Torah, Torah, Torah is the we caught him by surprise. Is the right? launch? I mean, yeah, the, right. Not the indication. Which that, is tiger in yeah in Japanese. So at this point, November twenty fifth, you know, <laughs> FDR himself, Armand, he. He believes a Japanese attack is going to occur somewhere. Yeah, yeah. This he's much ecstatic. This much they know now, and he calls together his war cabinet because now basically he and Churchill have 
what they want. Mm-hmm. And Churchill is not a player in this at this point. And nor does he really become a You don't a think player. British intelligence knew it was coming? I don't know. Hard I, to I say. I think Russian intelligence did, from what I've read. They could have. From from the Nazis they captured and, and the code that they've broken. And here, here, broken. herein lies one of the problems that you know may relieve conspiracy from this. Project Magic is picking up diplomatic right. encoded traffic. They're not picking up military right. encoded traffic. But that's the other thing I've been reading about. I mean, it wasn't exactly like they, these guys uh, maintained strict radio silence. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they, we picked up a lot of transmissions from these guys on the way, mm. you know, the fleet, back and forth from Japan. So that didn't seem to alert anybody because it was a couple weeks, like we said, that... I mean, They're two weeks out. Were, yeah, they, they had to sail just, for 13 right. days. This isn't like a 40-minute ICBM no, attack. Not at all. So FDR even states on the 25th of November that an attack could come as early as Monday, December 1st. This is FDR telling his war cabinet yeah. this. Well, he knows. Of course he knows. Stark therefore issues a warning dispatch. This is Admiral Stark in mm-hmm. D.C. Issues a warning dispatch to the Pacific Fleet. But that dispatch is considered... Uh, 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 it's considered a war warning, and it's also considered very vague. Yeah. Now, Admiral Kimmel in Honolulu, he does receive this warning. But again, it, it's considered so vague, it doesn't really tell him anything. So, I, And I think it was deliberately vaguely stated. And there, there's where you can... There's where you can speculate and have because conjecture. Because if, if you know attacks come, you say attack imminent, be prepared. Be prepared. Within the next This whatever. warning, Armand, never of course not. mentions the Hawaiian Islands. So Kimmel continues with what he's doing, which is training personnel yeah. at the airfields and in the harbor. He just continues on as normal. Because, and, and even in my mind, I would be thinking, yeah, Wake Island, the Philippines, something a little closer to where they're playing ball. Yeah. But again, as you said, your fleet right, that, is here. Yeah, but is that going to be a crippling blow if they invade Luzon or you know Wake Island or something? You had MacArthur and 20,000 Army personnel. Yeah, in the Philippines. In the Philippines. Yeah, right. You had more naval personnel sitting in their, in their bunks right. on the ships at Pearl Harbor. Maybe, yeah, by, maybe you can excuse you, like you said. I mean, the, the audacity of that attack may just negate the, any possibility of it. But I can't believe you don't at least have a contingency for that sort of you thing. You would think. December the 6th, now the day before the attack, Project Magic decodes 13 parts of a 14-part message from Tokyo to the embassy, to the Japanese embassy in Washington. The 13 parts make clear that the end of diplomatic relations is about to commence. And they mean commence like now. Instantly. Okay. December the 7th, 1941, 4.30 a.m. Eastern time, the 14th part, the 14th and final part of that message is intercepted. And this is criminal. However, it's not distributed. Distributed. Mm-hmm. The man responsible is asleep, and he will not be woken up for four and a half more hours. Well, at that point, I don't know how prepared you can get, although it probably would have saved a few lives. You know, the- How prepared can you don't have around-the-clock intelligence monitoring in December of 1941? Yeah, apparently not. You're allowed to just go to – you're not staffing? You have one guy who can who can do the translation? Well, that, that to me indicates – This that, is gross uh, negligence. You're inviting – You're inviting, you're inviting disaster. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. 9.30 a.m. 
Commander Kramer, this is the person who was who was asleep. Now, he's not derelict for being asleep. He's perfectly Yeah. He finally is 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 up. He's brought in. He's the man in charge of translating and then distributing the Project Magic intercepts. He finally arrives. He he deco- he he does the translation on the 14th part of the message and he instantly sees it and he goes to FDR personally at the White House to deliver it. FDR still in bed doing his morning notes. And the 14th part of the message doesn't say war outright, but everyone who's read it says the meaning is unmistakable. So at that point, prior to 10 a.m. in the morning, Eastern time, Roosevelt knows something is coming and coming quickly. Mm -hmm. Move forward, 10 a.m., still Eastern time. Kramer returns to his office. He's presented with yet another intercept. This intercept explains to the Japanese embassy that they are to deliver specifically, this is what you were talking about earlier, Armand, specifically deliver at 1 o'clock the 14 messages. Kramer realizes this is 7.30 a.m. Honolulu time, and it's a perfect time for a surprise attack. In the message, this additional message called message 15, the Japanese embassy is also ordered to destroy their code machines. Right. Yep. Now, at this point, this is on. Yeah, this is war. war. The, 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 you're at war. Kramer delivers the message to Admiral Stark and has someone else deliver it, another message to the White House, to FDR in person. Kramer goes to Stark personally. Stark promises Kramer he will notify Kimmel. But in fact, Stark does nothing. Mm-hmm. Kimmel is never I'd say he was ordered to do nothing. Kimmel is Fine. never notified. Advisors from the army are now trying to contact General George C. Marshall. Marshall is out horseback riding, mm-hmm. but he's finally found. And at half past eleven, Marshall gets in. He sees the message. He immediately begins drafting a message for army commanders in the Pacific to be on alert. Marshall contacts Start. You're going to love this, and says. Should I include Admiral Kimmel on the list of recipients for this warning I'm going to send out? Stark at first says no. I believe it. Then Marshall gets a return phone call from Stark saying, on second thought, include Kimmel. (coughs) Well, I think what we have to look at here, I think, what, what would have happened had we been prepared for this, assuming we could have been, and called back the carriers and and somehow at least had a defeat averted defeat in this and sunk I think about four hundred and twenty three planes I think the Japanese attacked with. Three hundred and fifty. Um so so I, I don't think the question Armon is how could you have beaten the Japanese on December seventh? I think the question is could you have gotten sleeping men up and out of their bunks? Right. Well I, I think my opinion is the the more heinous and surprised attack and the more people that die. Now I'm not saying Roosevelt wanted people to die, but the more tragic the incident, I think the more of a hue and cry there would be to go to war and immediately it just played in his his hands better. But what he, if we had sunk the Japanese fleet on the way? We knew they were coming and had to sunk them. I don't think I don't we probably wouldn't even go into war. Because, you know, the the Japanese would have don't said, know. we don't know. Yeah, of course we don't know. But Yeah, if you if you had sent a if you'd sent a submarine line out there to to knock off six aircraft carriers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, or, they, they or, were sitting or, ducks, really. Or, as, as many have conjectured, that the that the aircraft carriers were intentionally 
uh, yeah. sailed out of Pearl Harbor in advance. That has been debunked. Right. I don't, it I is don't a believe myth. that. The, there, there are standing things for right. why the Lexington I think it was, was out, why the Enterprise, Enterprise and was Saratoga, out, and the Saratoga yeah. were out. Well, I, I don't believe that because at that point, I don't think they thought those those ships were as valuable as the battleships. They're still fighting World War One you know, or 19th century style naval tactics. I think the U.S. Navy at that point is still much like the British Navy of the yeah 18th They're 19th century the and exactly and exactly all that stuff, so, yeah. i think that they, you know bombardment to support troops and let's line up and slug it out yeah much like the germans and and uh the uh the british did when the bismarck met the hood yeah it was a it was a surface battle we're gonna yeah. line up we're gonna take our best shots and we still had a few of them, even in the Pacific. Absolutely, but, but they absolutely, yeah. You know, the big battles: Coral Sea, Midway, Midway, and uh, Philippines. For me, the the tactics of warfare forever changed on December seventh, when the battleship was basically yeah. Yeah, was, was made obsolete. All, all all except for for you know bombardment, right? And and screening and, vessel or whatever. Exactly, you do. And, and the carrier to this day. You know, seventy-five years later, it is the aircraft well, carrier. We can talk about that. I mean, we with that new destroyer we have that no, costs like how I many billion no, dollars, and it's a missile launching destroyer, mm-hmm. which is can't even get through the uh, Panama Panama Canal. Canal. Zumwalt. Oh, the uh, but the carrier yeah. is is whole, is your extension of power. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the United States Navy is not known for it's known for two things: intercontinental ballistic missile submarines. And aircraft carriers. Yeah, and I don't know even if we need the carriers anymore. You, you, I don't know. you may not. So let's move uh, to 12 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, Marshall decides he's going to send a radio message out. But Marshall's staff can't actually read the general's writing. So it slows them down. Yeah. Now, the message does, does get sent out. But at this point, Japanese are 70 minutes away from arriving. Um the radio transmissions, though, for some reason, on December the 7th, are not working. Now, there's another one where the conspiracy crowd will point to, well... Which radio? From Washington to... Uh... However they used the Because they were going to have to radio to San Francisco. Oh, okay. Ra- yeah. You know. Right. They have to resort to sending a telegram. Oh, that, that... So Western Timely. Union yeah. is relaying the message through San Francisco. The message will arrive... By bicycle courier, eight hours after the attack has started, a bicycle courier shows up and delivers a message to Admiral Kimmel, and that message is not even marked as a priority message. Can you imagine Kimmel standing there with a telegram saying an an attack is coming after he's watched the United States Naval Fleet being decimated? That had to be one of the hardest moments in military history. For, for a person in command to stand there. Yeah, well, he had hard times coming. And he too. had more hard times yeah, coming. Yeah, that wasn't the last of his woes. But there again, I don't know. I, I just, I, when you keep giving excuses that this should have happened and it was gross incompetence or negligence, doesn't, doesn't, you know. Now you're now you're much more weighed towards conspiracy, aren't you? I, I, I always was. You're, but yeah, and, these well, but I, think, I think I'm cementing it, right? Yeah. I'm cementing this yeah. for you. Uh, 1.45 p.m., uh, FDR the, then gets informed by Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, that an, an attack is yeah. happening. Doesn't get many details, though. FDR on that day, Armand, would never go to the Oval Office. Well, he would stay in his upstairs probably, office, probably second reading, floor, reading a western, and so uh, he would he would work there from the day. Okay, three p.m. The war council convenes. Marshall, Stinson, Knox, 
and they attack FDR about how this could happen. Knox and Stinson had warned warned the commanders in the Pacific. Knox is uh, Secretary of the Navy. Secretary of the Navy. 3.50 p.m. FDR received. Actually, he he ran for vice president. Mm -hmm. Do you know that? Uh, What year? 36. 36. Oh, before. Okay. At 3.50 p.m., FDR receives the first detailed report about the attack. And FDR, at that point, asked, were there German planes involved? Yeah. Yeah. that's, that's, That's right. He is told, Armand. That eyewitnesses say they saw at least two planes with swastikas on them. Now, often the most unreliable testimony ever yeah. is eyewitness testimony. Yeah, especially on that day. But I'm the, sure some people in 9-11 find, saw some planes yeah, with swastikas flying around. I, I find it very interesting that he asked, was there any German involvement? In the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, yeah. Interesting question. That's a very interesting question to raise. Five o'clock, uh, he begins. Because bear in mind, he wanted to fight Germany. He did, yeah, and he this knew is his back door quote back yeah. door. To he knew getting in that he knew they war. were going to have to. Yeah. Five o'clock, he begins the writing of the speech that he would give the next day. He dictates this to his secretary, Grace Tully. The first line of the speech is is already complete before Tully even starts to write it down. He are, he already has it. Just dictates it immediately to her, and that first sentence ends a date that will live in world. History. History, correct. He changed that. He later literally crosses it out and changes it yeah. to infamy later that night. So he's at five o'clock. He's already working on the speech. Oh yeah. Uh, by the way, attack's still very fresh. At the time he's writing the speech, there are men trapped inside the USS Oklahoma. Yeah, knocking us, on the hall. Get us out of here. Trying to yep. be gotten out. This one is very interesting. Five thirty. FDR taken to see his physician has a severe nasal. Sinus congestion, yeah, um, much as I do today. And it's at this point that more than likely, and again, this has always been a rumor. No one can substantiate it, but more than likely, everyone you know close to this, and you have medical background, Armand, you'll probably agree. FDR has administered cocaine on his nasal membranes <laughs> to shrink. That was yeah, that that was pretty much standard back then. Yeah. Now, did this cause him euphoria or give him a boost in energy? Who knows? Who knows? But when you see those sensational internet headlines, FDR snotes cocaine on day that Japanese attacked yeah. Pearl Harbor. Again, context is everything. It's medicinal, yeah. I forget his doctor's name. I read his report on him. Um, God, what was it? Anyway, I'll, I'll think of it. Well, all his medical records yeah. upon his death, FDR, yeah. were burned. Yeah, I know because well, that's several years and uh, later. But mm-hmm. they knew in 1944 he was going to be dead, and and not finished. He was never finishing that. F- yeah, the f- fourth term. He was four. almost practically dead at Yalta, and f- you know Churchill was just shocked at how terrible he looked. So the next day, war is declared. The Germans wouldn't declare war until eleventh. No. Until the eleventh. Um, Which yeah, that posed a problem because yeah. Roosevelt wanted to fight them, and he didn't declare war on Germany and Italy. No. Even though, you know, however, the Russians were fighting the Germans. Exactly. They didn't fight the Japanese. Exactly. So the uh, interesting thing, Churchill is very happy because he knows he's going to have an ally in the war. And it's reported that Adolf Hitler is also incredibly happy because he thinks he's got the United States tied down with Japan, who he says, hey, we've got this one. They haven't lost a war in 3,000 years. Yeah. And they were doing pretty damn well. 
Uh, the only thing I would add to this, interesting, you bring up the medical. I got to tell you, when I was in medical school, uh, actually in residency, my, my anesthesiology uh, instructor told me, and this is a myth too, do you know, he said, and I, I believe this for many years, do you know more people, more soldiers and Navy personnel died from admi- administration of anesthesia in the hospitals than were killed by the Japanese? That's a myth? Yes, that's not true. I, and I looked it up and I've read some papers, about 13 people were actually killed by administration. Eventually, of, on that uh, thiopentone, yeah. is what they were using an IV anesthesia. The the hospitals and the makeshift triage units. Yeah, they, they would run out of morphine. Oh, they weren't prepared for anything like this on that day, and and people. But ironically, were this, left to suffer. This greatly. Captain Bob Hoagland uh, uh, was the only anesthesiologist there, but uh, this J.J. Moorhead, uh, three days before the attack, gave a lecture on treating wounds of civil and military should there be an attack. So that helped. So but, a couple things I want to, I mean, you're, you're pretty much in the, in the camp of they knew something was coming. Yeah. I think you can always debate. They may not have known how big the attack was going to be. They may have been caught. Right. They didn't know the they, exact date. They admit, yeah, they may have been caught by date, time, and size. Yes. Um, and extent, you know, all those things. Um, they may have been hoping for a small attack that you know got the door open for them, and instead they got hit by the full force of the Japanese yes, naval they fleet. They weren't ready for the enormity of this exactly attack. Exactly. Um, you mentioned the oil embargo earlier that that starts to set this off. Um, Admiral Kimmel and the Army's General Walter Short, also stationed in Honolulu, they're held responsible. Oh yes. Uh, Kimmel had even asked for a court martial. In a, yeah. in a in a chance to clear his name, and and wasn't given one. Um, he would he would go before joint committees and testify, and uh, he would die in 1968. His family to this day has asked Presidents Obama, Bush, Clinton, and Bush uh, 41 for help in restoring Kimmel to four star status. Yeah, because he was I don't know how many grades they lowered him, but. Uh... I think they've exonerated. Congress has exonerated him from. There was a congressional action. act, I believe, in two thousand or two thousand and one yeah. that exonerated him from responsibility. But the full restoration of rank and privilege, not yet, not yet no. and and it may never be done because it basically involves you have to lay the blame elsewhere, and that might be really really tough to do. So the books again, folks. The. Uh, a, a Matter of Honor by Anthony Summers, Robin Swan, available for you at audible.com and at amazon.com. Don't forget, we'll, we do our show Monday through Friday here on lineupmedia.fm. Tony Hubert, Armand Kachigian. So as you reflect on the things from December the 7th, 1941, on this date in history, uh, we will post on our blog a list of and some websites where you can actually see the names of the deceased because you just see the numbers. And when you just see the numbers, it's impersonal. And in fact, one website I found, you can sort by ship and by uh, a a number of different means, which, um, and and bring up the casualties for that day. It's really quite sobering and quite humbling and uh, definitely should take a look at that. For producer Brian Crock, I'm Tony Hubert. When December 8th rolls around here on lineupmedia.fm, we'll be back with more of This Day in History tomorrow. Talk to you then.
This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.